We all want to do work that we love. And as leaders, entrepreneurs, and employees, wouldn't it be great to create workplaces where work feels like play? Where people are tuned in to the changes going on in the world around them. Where they're constantly learning, spotting new opportunities, and taking action to go after them. I'm Amanda Satilli, and this is the Fearless Growth Podcast, where my guests and I will explore the mindsets and choices that lead you and your organization to outstanding performance. Today, my guest is Greg White. Greg and I first got to know each other as section mates at Harvard Business School. And after leaving there, he worked in investments, first for Solomon Brothers and eventually founding his own venture capital firm. He also taught at the Kellogg School of Management, one of the nation's premier business schools. I'm really interested to hear about Greg's transitions in in life and in career, because after that, he served for the Chicago Community Trust, which is a completely different kind of investment. It's philanthropic investment. So people investing in solving and uh, addressing the greatest and most critical needs facing the Chicago area. And then now he's the CEO of Learn Charter School Network, which has 11 schools in Chicago and D.C. and serves more than 4,400 students. Uh, First of all, welcome. (laughs) And second of all, I really want to explore this transition that you made from uh, kind of the business and, you know, investment world to philanthropy and eventually becoming the CEO of a charter school network. Thank you, Amanda. So, uh, Amanda, understand this was not sort of one it wasn't. Uh, it took many years uh, to actually do this, but it happened over. It happened in one decision. What I mean by that is, I've always been involved in the community, even when I worked in in, in finance. I had another. I had a had a dual life. So when I worked at in banking, Continental Bank, and the Solomon Brothers, you might know this. I was actually commissioner of a baseball league in in, in, a, in a very low income community called Cabrini Green. So by day I was a banker. At night I was a volunteer baseball coach. Uh, and I became commissioner. Even in business school, man, while we were in business school, did you know I had a Boy Scout troop at the Roxbury Boys and Girls Club? I did not know that. I've always had this pull to, uh, as a volunteer basis, to stay deeply involved in the community. And the last one, it gave me leadership experience. More importantly, it had me, it was, it was so fulfilling. Uh, in addition to baseball league, I was also board president of a group called Lakefront SRO. We're the largest developers of single room occupancy housing for the homeless. The point I'm making is it wasn't an overnight decision. I've always been deeply involved in, in, in how to make the community a better place. And I knew I know the need. So when you get involved and you're in the front lines, you know the need. Um, and I always said, you know, let me one day. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and I was a volunteer, by the way, or, uh, the last one. I was I was actually um, a volunteer on the board of uh, Learn Charter School. And um, I was board president for a couple of years. And when the opportunity came to grow the network from one little school to multiple schools, um, I was hired as a CEO. Fantastic. So was that a hard decision? It, it was a very easy decision for me, but it was dip- a difficult sell to my <laughs> to, to family and friends occasionally. Okay. okay. So, <laughs> no. Uh, so no, I've always had, um, I, I, feel, I believe I have the right to live with passion and purpose. I want to be excited about what I do. Um, and I've always had a passion for education and a passion for entrepreneurship. This was a very entrepreneur venture um, you know, to, to grow, you know, to really grow from 20 employees and now 550 employees, to grow from 2 million in revenue when I joined to now it's 
about 70 million. So it's an entrepreneurial venture. Also, at the time I was working downtown with a nice office and tons of resources, I really wanted to be in the community, on the front lines. I was well aware of the problems of education in low-income communities. It just wasn't working for many students who looked just like me. And I said, well, what can I, what can I do? How can I get involved? Not just theoretically and you know, talk about policies and you know, raise a little money. No. How do I get involved on the front lines, working directly with students? And I wasn't qualified to be a teacher. It also wasn't my highest and best use of my skills. How do I leverage my business uh, expertise, my passion for kids, and education, and my relationships and contacts and finance to help, um, help low-income kids great education? So tell me a little bit about a typical day or a typical week as CEO of Learn Charter School Network. What do, what do you do? Great question. So I'm lazy like focus on talent. I realized in the, the day, I, I'm, it's not about curriculum, it's about talent. So I'm obsessed with, you know, how do I achieve results through my 11 principles and my other direct reports? So I'm crystal clear, which is, you know, how are the principles doing? We have great principles, you have great schools. Would you agree? Like, it's simple. Great principles, you have great schools. Right. So I'm always checking in. How can I be helpful? What resources do you need? So first and foremost, it's all about focus on talent. Um, uh, two, I, I'm externally focused also. I need to work with the politicians, everything from my local alderman to the mayor. Or You must always, you know, we're, we're a public school, so therefore we're impacted by things that occur in the public sector. Um, and that's a, so just going to develop relationships uh, with politicians, with other uh, business leaders. I do a lot of fundraising. We fundraise about four and a half to five million dollars a year. So it's it's telling our story, compelling story to um, philanthropic people who care passionately about education. And, and the last piece is putting out fires. Any given day, this is fun about this job. Any given day, you have no idea what shows up. Correct. <laughs> that is <laughs> particularly light of COVID. Particularly right. light of COVID. Right. And then more importantly, am I the right person to work on it? So my job, of course, is to is to hire great people motivate them and then make sure that to make sure that, that um, they have the autonomy and the authority and, and the judgment to, you know, to make good decisions. Do you find that because you have a, you're a charter school and you operate under a little bit different rules than the other schools in Chicago that you that you can attract way more fantastic principals, teachers, et cetera, than a typical school? Uh, that's a good question. I, I won't make a value judgment. I'll say it's a different profile. How's that? I'm not sure about good or better. I think it's definitely a different profile. Okay. Because with the autonomy that a principal has, it's also a lot of responsibility, correct? Mm-hmm. It's easier if there's a guidebook you have to follow. It's much more difficult if you can make decisions, um, if, if, it's, if, it's not, if, if the rules aren't clearly written. If you have to make judgments, um, about people, about about the curriculum. So you're saying that in a charter school, there's just more variables that have to be decided, and some people are less comfortable with that, and other people re- relish it. Yes, uh, there's also higher, I think, a high level of accountability too. Mm-hmm. That your results are public, and every five years we must renew our charter. If we deliver poor results, we didn't. Our charter is not renewed. So our principles are clear, which is uh, we have to deliver strong results. Two. Uh, students are not assigned to our school. We have to be a better option for parents, but they'll go somewhere else. Unlike your traditional school where kids are assigned, in some sense they have a monopoly from the neighborhood, we do not. We have to convince every family, family we're the best option for them to attend. 
So, so therefore, the principals must be highly confident they can do a great job. Otherwise, it's not. A, it's, what do you hold them accountable for, and what what are the results that you can point to that 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 show to prospective families and to prospective employees that you're really doing something different than a regular school? So what they're accountable to, I can be really simple. I say, as principals, you got to do three things. One, you must live out values. You must drive strong academic achievement. And you have to play well with others, right? You'd be a good team player. And under, I guess under the uh, strong academic results, uh, we measure a couple of things. One, where our kids go to high school and to college. So we track, although we're pre-K through A, we track students all the way through high school and through completion of college. And by that measure, we have, we have uh, very, very strong college completion, even after, although we only have them through the eighth grade. Uh, we also have strong academic outcomes. If you measure by the uh, state standard, the Illinois Assessment of Readiness, which is, which is a very rigorous test um, and it's nationally norm, we dramatically outperform all the, all the schools that in the neighborhood that our kids would have attended. I mean, by, by, by a multiple. Um, so we're very proud of those accurate results. But more important than that, actually, I, I tell you, living the values is actually much more difficult and, and much more important to us. Um, a leader it just it has to also embrace who we are, how we treat each other. Values are how you treat each other and how you make important decisions. So we have five core values, high expectations, safe and nurturing environment. It's really important. Respect, right? really important. Uh, family involvement, all right? And these are things pe- pe- people are judged on. Like, are you living our values in terms of how you treat people? And the final one is the whole child, not just academics. Are you meeting the social, emotional, psychological, and physical needs of students? Because you can drive great academic outcomes, but if you're not safe and nurturing, we don't want you here. With all your great results and probably good teachers and everything, I would think that families would be clamoring to get in. Is that the case? Do you have way more applicants than you can take? And if so, or even if not so, what are the criteria for getting for becoming, you know, a student at, at Learn Charter Schools? So the great news is there is no criteria. If you live in the city, then you have a right to, a right to enroll in our school. There's no application. It's just an enrollment form. All right. There are no, there's no tests. There's no fee. It's a free open enrollment public school. So can anybody, I mean, do you have plenty of capacity for every single person who enrolls? Uh, in general, yes. Um, if not, then we'll have, a, we'll have a lottery. In general, we, we have space. Understand this though, that when people, when most families decide where to send their kids for elementary school, it's really, it's really the proximity to who's dropping the kid off. 90% of our kids come from a, a mile radius of, of, of our school. And we're located in uh, some of the um, most challenged communities in the city of Chicago. So we purposely locate in uh, communities where we know there's great need for stronger or higher level education. And so, so most kids come are, are from the neighborhood. And would there be another school that they could have gone to that would be almost as close? Oh, sure. That if we, Chicago, Chicago has a demographic problem, which is they've lost students. A lot of families have left Chicago. As a result, there's actually there's a lot more space than there are students. Oh, okay. So there's plenty of choice. Parents, parents have a lot of choice, and we have to be the best option for them. That, that and that's uh, by delivering the, by having the best treatment, how we treat our families, 
and how well our students are performing academically. Do you think that you get different types of kids than the uh, than the non-charter schools get, or do you think you just kind of get a random selection of families and kids? So I think that what we have is it, it tends to reflect it, it tends to reflect the community, right? Because parents, again, proximity is a huge factor where where kids attend. Mm-hmm. Uh, two, parents are less informed than you imagine. Uh, most and most parents do not know the test scores for the school down the street. They just don't, and it also may not be the most important criteria. We also we discover also that there are really I think a couple types of parents. There's some parents who come to us because they have struggled. Their child has been failing in the traditional neighborhood school, so they seek us out because their child is struggling, and, and they may need a different approach. They're also we have a longer school day, a longer school year. There's some families that matters the most, right? Mm-hmm. If you're if you're a mom and you're a single mom, you work. You need, you need to have seven o'clock drop off and a five p.m. pickup, but we're a great place for you, mm. right? Or, or either before some parents need before, and we also start typically the first week of August. So, if it's helpful to have, a, if if you want your child to get a jump start on the academic year, we're a great place for you, because the charter we had the autonomy to set our own calendar, to set our hours of operation, right? To, after, you know, to offer the after school programs that are necessary. Are there people or political forces that disagree with the charter school approach? And if they do, why do they disagree? Uh, you have to ask them. I'm not sure. I, I think I think there's much, my opinion, there's much misinformation. Just things that just people believe things that aren't true. Um, the, so I think that when we have an opportunity to really tell our story and, and, and clear up the misinformation um, and the myths, in general, we, we get we get we get very positive support, but there's a lot of misinformation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the last piece is we get paid per student, so the money falls to students. So if a student, a parent elects to send their child to our school versus the school down the street, well, the funding for that student goes to is funnel is, is redirected from that other school to our school. And people see that as a problem because it's robbing the the non charter schools of funds. Oh, I, sure, I think potentially. I think what what because if you lose, you know, more than some size, if, if you lose your enrollment uh, because of poor performance, most cases. Well, guess what? How do, how do you get how do you get better when you're losing resources? Right. There's that sort of very negative spiral, correct? I just did a little bit of research before talking to you that enrollment is down uh, because of the pandemic. I guess that especially with three and four year olds, they're not. They're not yes. signing up to come to the other schools as readily, but I believe your school is still getting, it hasn't had as much of a drop in enrollment. So you, your funding is probably doing better than some of those other schools. We've been fortunate. I think that the, you're right. At the kindergarten level, parents, some parents are just deferred until COVID is over. We've been fortunate to maintain our, our, our high level enrollment, but a large part is through retention. So if, if parents are satisfied, and the students are happy and making and, and making academic progress. Guess what? Parents want their kids to return to life. Right. And we've had that. That's been our positive experience. What What can you tell us about the disparity, if any, between the funding that um, schools in poor, you know, lower income neighborhoods have versus the schools that are in higher income neighborhoods? How does that? How does is that is there a disparity, and how does it affect things if there is? Absolutely positive. It's a huge disparity. And not within a city. Typically, within a city of Chicago or Waukegan, it, it's, it doesn't vary by neighborhood. It does vary by jurisdiction. 
right? So for example, how, it's, how public school works funding is typically the state gives so much per kid, right? And then typically that's augmented by the local real estate property tax base, right? The problem is what? Rich communities have a lot more real estate taxes. <laughs> they have more expensive homes. And therefore, they can actually invest substantially more in education. So in a poor community, they rely heavily on state funding. And on, on they're not able to, to augment more than a couple thousand dollars. So, and it could be wide dis- disparities. So, for example, in Chicago, um, I think we spent about 12000 per student, eleven to 12000 per student. There's some some much wealthier communities that maybe spend twenty five to thirty thousand per student, and it's because their local their, their property tax base is much higher, um, more expensive homes, more much more commercial enterprises like shopping malls or others commercial buildings, and when, so the problem is where you have the greatest need, you have a, a lot fewer resources. Right, that's so sad. So backwards, kind of. Well, but they would argue, by the way, but, but, but wealthier communities say, hey, listen, we're paying more in taxes. We want to invest more. Why shouldn't? So their argument is, why can't I invest more in, in my community than, than others? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what to think about is in some um, parts of Georgia, they will say if you're if you don't, you know, if you're too old to have school age kids, you don't have to pay as much property tax. But in my mind, I mean, I guess I'm just too probably any. Pollyanna-ish. It seems like it's to everyone's benefit to have well-educated young people coming into the workforce, contributing to society. Uh, you know, it's just, it's it's a public good. It's not a good just for the families that are actually have school-aged children. I agree, Amanda. The other piece is like that is, do you view education, public education, as an investment or an expense? If you view it as an expense, right, and you don't believe these kids will, will, will contribute, and of course, you want to minimize that. Right? If you do public education as an investment in which society over the long term, there'll be a substantial return. Of course, you want to you know, do more. I believe it's definitely investment, investment in our entire uh, culture and society and, and everything. So I'm so happy with what, what you do and how you contribute so much, Greg. Um, one of the things that I found absolutely wonderful about your literature online about learned charter schools is that you do a blend of academic rigor and social emotional support. And you even teach things like breathing exercises and meditation and you do character building. I noticed that that you had the kids recite every day. I will try my best. I will not quit. I will not rest. So can you tell us a little bit about, about all of that? Like what, what does social and emotional support mean? And does it differ by teacher quite a bit? Or are there certain um, principles and practices that, that every learned charter school puts in place? Sure. So, uh, good question. By the way, we, I know it's really the hot topic now, SEL, um, social emotional learning. But really, we've been doing this for the last 20 plus years. It's, it's core to our value system um, and it's core to our success. So a couple of real practice. So for example, we've had we have so we've always had social workers at every school, and now we have more than one, particularly in light of COVID. Correct. So it's just you, and 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 the key is who work directly with the students. And in some places, social workers. So it's not just about compliance, but also it's not a question. Of, it's all kids have access, right? Um, so it's really important. The second piece is how do we then train our teachers? Right, provide really true training 
so they can actually meet the social emotional needs. It's not just sending the kid down the hall, but what if every adult is empowered and trained to really help meet the social emotional needs? Uh, look, let's be honest. The communities we, we operate in, there are a lot of complex, there's a lot of trauma and a lot of complex needs, a lot of violence. And, you know, if you're a third grader and your, your, your dad got shot last night, math is not first, not top of your list, right? Right. It's not, it's not your focus right now. Philosophically, we believe before we can help you, we must sometimes heal you. So it's really working with students and families, not just students, but also the families, to help them um, deal with some of the complex needs of you know, homelessness, death, imprisonment. If, you're, if your mother has been unfortunately locked up, that does impact your, your, your psychology and your ability to do well academically. Just recognizing the challenges faced by our families and trying to bring solutions. Wow, that sounds like so many tough issues to deal with. Um, and now the pandemic is making it even more difficult. How has the pandemic impacted kids' ability to deal with the trauma that they're experiencing, but also to get along in the classroom, get along on the playground, and learn social skills? Great question, Amanda. So a couple of things. One, I think the kids are like adults. Everyone is on edge, I call it. I mean, I think they're just, people seem to have a shorter fuse, just a little bit more um, quick triggers now, right? I think, I think this is built up uh, anxiety or stress, and people aren't quite sure how, where it's from and how, how, how do I express it, right? How do I, how do I get relief from that? So therefore, um, it has been tough. Two, there's a big, big sense of isolation, particularly for last year, correct? Right? People weren't connecting. And even now, because of all the social distancing and the masking, it's not the same level of just personal connection. That's a, a, that's a, uh, a genuine human need. Mm-hmm. Now think about it, you know, there's students who, who were receiving social work and, psych- and psychology support, uh, support. It, was, oh, it was Zoom. It's not the same thing it's doing in person. It's, no. Uh, however, flip side is, folks, kids are amazingly resilient. So, you know, they're back. They're thrilled to be back. I mean, they are very, very happy to be back in person um, and making those connections again, um, receiving the direct academic support they need. We're doing our very best. The last thing I'll tell you, which is we, when kids return last April, we said it's our number one priority is joy. How do we bring joy? Yes, we, we need to work on the academics without question. But first and foremost, let's, how do we bring back joy? This, you know, that's, I think, a big part of what's missing during this um, unfortunate I love time that. when students cannot be in the building. I love that in one of your videos, one of the teachers said, we just, we let kids be kids. I think that's so important to let kids play and pursue topics that they're interested in when they're in school and learn how to get along with other kids and learn, you know, if somebody's father did get shot, how how do you empathize with that as another child? Or what, you know, those are such important life lessons that I would say would be almost impossible to uh, convey via Zoom. What did you, did you find any things that did bring back joy the most? I mean, like, were there, were there things that you all tried to make sure every teacher did so that kids were really engaged with their work and were feeling joyful? So good questions. One, you know, kids want to be outside as much as possible, correct? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So whenever possible, have kids outside. And don't forget, the communities we serve, a lot of kids do not really do not go outside a lot. 
mm. because of the, the because unfortunately because of the violence. Parents do not feel safe. The kids don't feel safe. You don't you do not see kids bikes bike riding outside. You don't see little league baseball teams or the Boy Scout troops. So we try to offer those here. So for example, a lot, a lot more sports programming. Our volleyball team, uh, cross country and soccer. So let's let really do very specific programming so kids can get outside. The camaraderie of sports is really important. Just allowing just some unstructured time because you know, they, they naturally want to socialize. Uh, we have some enrichment classes. So it's really just like, what are you passionate about and how do we connect their, our teacher's passion with our students' passion and give them a chance just to enjoy some wonderful experiences? That's, that's great. I think I agree. Being outside where you can run around and just get your and you know, just use your physical body, your physical body. If you can, if you can feel like you've you've run a long way, or you've gone on the jungle gym, or whatever, you just you're so much more ready to learn. If you have kind of gotten your wiggles out of you, <laughs> at least that's how I am. Absolutely. Yeah. So one of the criteria that you mentioned when we were talking about results was high school placement and college placement. I guess I'm just behind the times, but I didn't really realize that schools that just go through eighth grade, public schools at least, would have um, like placement offices to get you into high school. So what high schools are these kids going to? Do they go on to a charter public school? Do they go occasionally to private schools or do they go back into the regular school system? And if they do, what happens then? Great question. So one of the unique aspects of learning is in every school we have eighth graders, we have full-time positions called high school placement. So their job is to work with our families, work with our students, and find the best high school placement that really in a, in a, in a, in a we call a college prep high school. So high schools that send a high percentage of kids to college. Um, it's really important. Uh, so the examples. In Chicago, they go to some of the best private schools in Chicago with, with scholarships, which is great. They go to boarding schools. Uh, we have a kid, one kid at, um, at Andover. And so, you know, so this is one of the most prestigious, most competitive high schools, like boarding schools in the nation. We also send kids to charter schools, high schools, as well as some of the selective uh, enrollment high schools in Chicago where they have to test it. So the vast majority of our students go to great high schools uh, that will then send them, tell them to college. And how do they fare there? Do they, do they sometimes have a culture shock of, Wow, I suddenly landed here with a bunch of private school kids, or even more so boarding school kids. I'm I don't fit in. How how do you prepare them for that? That's a great question. Um, students are far more resilient than, than adults realize, right? I mean, look, they're they're they're, they're, they're with other kids, which is a, a huge two. They they like the research which environments. When they go to visit the boarding schools or some of these private schools, they're like, wow, right? I mean, it's a, it's a pretty, and they quickly realize, I mean, the amount of resources and, you know, the nice facilities and, you know, the computers, all the wonderful things these schools have. Um, they also like being around other highly motivated, uh, talented um, students. Um, there is, there are some adjustments, um, but our job is to make sure they're ready academically, and which we do, a, we do a very good job of. And they make, they tend to make, the, they'll, they'll make the social adjustments. I mean, that's, you know, it's, at that age, it's still flexible and, uh, they don't have all the baggage that adults have. And you find even if you send them to an extremely um, competitive school like Andover, where probably the kids that come there have been, uh, you know, been to the best uh, K through eighth grade 
programs that there are and and also have gone through a selective admission process. You know, if they're paying students, I'm sure they had to compete to even get into Andover. I would I would just be afraid to send a kid from your school there that they just go like, oh, I don't I'm not as prepared as everyone else. But it sounds like you just do such a good job preparing them that they're fine. Well, the key is, is the right place. Now, very few kids will, will go to a boarding school. Some, but not right. But it's the right placement. There's some students. Once you know the family, once you know what's important to them, uh, their ability to adjust, you pick the right place. And the key is, though, someone's guiding them. It's not a random process, right? Right. Um, and we we do our own due diligence. There are some schools which which embrace our students. Our students have a wonderful experience, and we help them go there. There are some schools which are less welcoming. And so we we steer we steer our kids away from those schools. That is so valuable. Oh my gosh, to have that kind of advice and guidance as a twelve or thirteen year old is just amazing. That's fabulous. Well, Greg, what did we're nearing the end of our time? So, what did I not ask you that I should have asked you? Or what other points do you feel like our audience really needs to know about you and your work at the Learn Charter Schools, if anything? Sure, I, I do think that. Um, uh, yeah, I think this this con this notion of I encourage people find your passion. Right, have the courage to do something that's meaningful to you, whatever it looks like. When I when I was making a transition, I was learn. My friends who didn't quite understand what I was doing, I said, "Guys, I'm just trying to live with passion and purpose. I want to be all in. I want and I want to create something that would not have existed because of the work I did. I'm gonna look back and realize that look." There are 11 great schools and tens of thousands of kids that got a high quality education because of the work uh, of the, my colleagues working alongside me, right? So something good got done. Um, and, uh, and, and it's been a joy. It's been hard, um, but it's been a joy because when you're all in, it's not exhausting work. It's actually quite exhilarating. That's so inspirational, Greg. What can people do if they want to support um, your cause and help uh, learn charter schools do what they need to do, or or even if someone wants to work there. <laughs> well, please, we, that's great. We we all, all look, we have we are always looking for talent. I promise you, every level of the organization, every job. So w, uh, www.learncharter.org. That's our website. You'll find if you're a potential parent, you'll find out how to enroll. If you're a potential employee, you'll find out all our job openings. And if you're a potential donor, it also makes it clear how you can support us financially. Uh, the last piece is, I would just, uh, it's helpful the more people who are aware of charter schools, the better. There's a lot of misinformation. Get the facts. Like, what exactly is a charter school? Again, we're a public school. Open enrollment. It's free. All kids. There's no test to get in. Um, but the autonomy allows us to make, uh, make really wonderful decisions uh, on behalf of kids. I love that. Greg, thank you so much for being on our podcast. And it's been wonderful to reconnect with you. You and I have talked several times over the last couple of years, but I don't think we've gone this in depth into what really makes you tick and and the value that you're creating in the world. And I really appreciate all that you're doing. And thank you for being a guest. Amanda, thank you for the opportunity. Take care. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Fearless Growth. 
You can find out more about the show at satilly.com slash podcast, and you can listen on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like what you've heard, please take a moment to write a review and give us a star rating. Reviews matter so much in helping others find us. Thanks for your support.